Okay, uh, good evening, brothers and sisters in the faith. Uh, thank you again for attending our Bible History Project for this evening. Uh, the title of our episode today, or tonight rather, is The Angel. Probably wondering why it's titled that way, but you'll find out soon enough. But before we go ahead and proceed, let us all stand for our opening prayer. Everlasting Father in heaven, yes. our gracious God, Yahuwah, yes. thank you so much for gathering your people together. Yes. Father, it is our privilege to know more about your will yes. and to learn from your holy book. Amen. Father, may you please send your Holy Spirit upon us yes. and help us to comprehend and to understand fully your teachings. Yes. So all of us can grow in our faith and come to have a better understanding of you. Amen. Lord Yahusha, we also worship you. Yes. You are our Messiah and King. May you stand by our side. May you be with everyone who are gathered together tonight. Yes. And may you help us to receive not only forgiveness of sins, yes, but also the power of your spirit. Amen. We believe, Father, that you have listened to our prayers. Yes. We ask everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Amen. All right. Praises be to the Father that we're gathered together tonight. How's everyone doing? Doing good? I'm glad Now we're going to continue with the book of Exodus. We're now in Exodus chapter 23. Now, before we go ahead and proceed to Exodus chapter 23, I just want to remind everyone that we are going over the laws that God has given. It began with the Ten Commandments and specific and additional rules and regulations called judgments, and we will proceed to continue with that. And so this next section is about a call for justice. You see, when it comes to God, our Father, He prefers that we uphold justice. This is why He's the God of justice. It's also a good thing that He's a God of mercy, because if He was just a God of justice, none of us would be here today, right? Because according to God's justice, none of us deserve our life, because it is tempered by the mercy of God. Indeed, we still have our life, and we have the ability to worship God to this very day. So let's begin with Exodus chapter 23 in the verses 1. What is one of God's commands concerning our life? Exodus 23 verse 1, you must not pass along false rumors. You must not cooperate with evil people by lying on the witness stand. If there's something God really, really hates, it is lies. How many here has ever told a lie in their life? Maybe you probably will raise your hand because when it comes to speaking the whole truth and nothing but the truth, there's not too many people who can make that claim, right? Yahushua HaMashiach can make that claim. All he spoke of is the truth. But as human beings, sometimes we lie. Now, when people lie, why do they do so? Usually, it's to protect themselves. Sometimes they also whisper or mention white lies, lies that they don't think is damaging or they lie because they want to protect someone else. However, if there's a kind of lie that God does not want, it is a lie that will damage the reputation of other people. This is why we should never, ever lie. And especially, we should never, ever be a false witness or someone who passes false rumors. God hates that. And what also does God Hate and does not like. The book of Exodus 23, 2 down to 3, you must not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you are called to testify in a dispute, do not be swayed by the crowd to twist justice. 
and do not slant your testimony in favor of a person just because that person is poor. This is God's justice in action. He doesn't want us to speak lies and he does not want us to do what is wrong just because everyone else is doing it. You know, there's something we have to understand about culture. Basically, in the world today, there are two kinds of cultures. What are they? The collectivistic culture and the individualistic culture. Here in the United States, the culture adopted is individualistic. It's about the individual rights. However, in Eastern countries, what they adopt is called collectivism. What is more important than the individual right is the social harmony of the group. And so there is the inclination to side with the group if, if it will protect the harmony of the group. Have you ever been to an organization or maybe a family, someone in that organization does something wrong? And so what they agree to do is to cover it up. They want to protect the collective. And so it's okay to lie. It's okay to do wrong if you're going to protect the collective. Sometimes when the organization believes that they are better than those who are not included in their organization, they develop what is called the crowd mentality. It is us against them. And so even if what they're doing is wrong because of this crowd mentality, the individuals in that group, what do they do? They're swayed to do what is wrong. This is why the Bible says he wants us to stand up. Even if the crowd is telling you to do what is wrong, we as individuals, if we know the right thing to do, we have to stand up. Is that easy to do? No. What does it take to do that? Courage. This is why God loves it when he sees his people act courageously. It is a virtue that is high up there in God's standards. So we need to do that. What else does God teach us? The book of Exodus 23 uh, and the verses 6 down to 7. In a lawsuit, you must not deny justice to the poor. Be sure never to charge anyone falsely with evil. Never sentence an innocent or blameless person to death. For I never declare a guilty person to be innocent. What does God not want to see here on earth? He does not want to see an innocent person be taken to jail. He does not want to see an innocent person go to death. Do you know anyone who is in jail right now? But you know he's not guilty at all. God does not like that. And what does God also not like? He doesn't like it when that person who's in jail, just because of his stature, is denied justice. We all deserve a lawyer, right? We all deserve justice because what God wants is for the guilty to be judged, but for the innocent not to be judged. This is God's will. And so that for this will to be carried out, what does God instruct all of us to do, especially those who have power on their side? Let's read the book of Exodus 23, verse 8. What does it say? <laughs> Take no bribes. Why? For a bribe makes you ignore something that you clearly see. A bribe makes even the righteous person twist the truth. A bribe can make you act with the, uh, that is in contrast to your true character. 
even if you are a righteous person or a good person in general, right? Because of bribes, it makes you ignore what you can clearly see that is wrong. This is why we should never take bribes. It doesn't matter where you are in the social ranking. We must never ever take bribes. Why? So that we can see clearly. How many here can see clearly? I think a lot of us can see clearly, right? But sometimes, even if you can see clearly, you don't do anything about it, right? There are people who say today, you know, I know what they're doing is wrong, but I don't have to act. I know what they're doing is against the will of God, but there's no need for us to take any action. That's something God doesn't like either. As a matter of fact, this is God's will, just in case we know there's a wrongdoing taking place. Maybe it's in our place of work. Maybe it's in the church where we belong to. Maybe it's in some organization we are members of. If we see wrongdoing, what does God want us to do? Proverbs 24, 11, 12. Don't hesitate. What does it mean when God says don't hesitate? Take action, right? Not just to take action, but don't take action tomorrow or the next day. Take action now. Don't hesitate to rescue someone who is about to be executed unjustly. You may say that it is none of your business, but God knows and judges your motives. He keeps watch on you. He knows, and he will reward you according to what you do. If we see something wrong, what does God want us to do? Don't hesitate to act. For example, you belong to, you have a job, right? And if you, if you are, in some organization, some business, you have a livelihood, you have a boss, right? What if in the place where you work, there is this one person who's being bullied by the boss? And you know that this boss, we call him a bad boss, is abusing him and oppressing him. And you know what he's doing is against the law. What would you do? I better not say anything because if I say something, I'm going to lose my job, right? Is that what you're going to do? Right? But what does God want? If what you say can help someone else, what does God want us to do? He wants us to act and do not hesitate to act. If you belong to an organization and the president of the organization is doing something to oppress someone else and you can do something to help, you should do that. Because if we will keep silent because we say to ourselves, oh, it's not, none of my business. God has something against that. God wants us to do something. And what does God say when we do something about that? He will reward us according to what we do. You see, God does not want that people take advantage of other people. As a matter of fact, this is also God's will in Exodus 23, verse 9. You must not oppress foreigners. You know what it's like to be a foreigner. For you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. So we must never oppress Instead of using power and authority to abuse and misuse that authority against others, we need to use that to help other people. In fact, according to God's teachings, he instructs us to do good even with our enemies. And that teaching was not just during the Christian era, but even during the days of the people of Israel. In fact, in the book of Exodus 23, 45, this is what it says. If you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey 
that has strayed away, take it back to its owner. If you see that the donkey of someone who hates you has collapsed under its load, do not walk by. Instead, stop and help. This is God's will. But what is human nature? Human nature is when you see a donkey, it's, it's strayed away. What do you do? You take that donkey for yourself, maybe. I got a donkey, right? God says, no, you bring it back to its owner. Not only that, even if the owner of that donkey happens to be your enemy, happens to be the one that you, uh, who, someone who hates you, what does he say? Bring it back anyway. And so God is telling us, even way back in the book of Exodus, we should love even our enemies. We should treat them like human beings. What else is God's teaching in the book of Exodus 23 now, 10 to 11? Plant and harvest your crops for six years, but let the land be renewed and lie uncultivated during the seventh year. Then let the poor among your harvest, uh, let the poor among you harvest whatever grows on its own. Leave the rest for wild animals to eat. The same applies to your vineyards and olive groves. So God is teaching us here about helping the poor, including animals, right? If you have a field, in the sixth year, you are not to cultivate it, right? And so what happens when there are food, there's food that grows by itself? That's for who? The poor, for wild animals. But we also see here, in operation, the principles of the Sabbath, right? What is the principle of the Sabbath? Work for six days. On the seventh day, you rest. It's also applied on a yearly basis. For six years, what do you do? You work. On the seventh year, what do you do? You let the land rest. It's also applicable in a yearly fashion. What else? In the book of Exodus 23, 12, you have six days each week for your ordinary work. But on the seventh day, you must stop working. This gives your ox and your donkey a chance to rest. It's, it also allows your slaves and the foreigners living among you to be refreshed. And so those are the principles of the Sabbath. Basically, two things that I want you to understand about the principles of Sabbath. What are they? What are they? Number one, you have to work hard, right? Work hard. For the majority of the week, work hard. Six days out of the week, actually, right? On the seventh day, you have to replenish. You have to rest so that you can be refreshed. This applies for all things, including animals. This is why God wants us to understand the principles of the Sabbath, which is very much applicable even during our time. Give your mind, give your body a rest. Otherwise, you're going to destroy yourself and you're going to end up stressed out and sick. You have to go visit the medical office. And we don't want that to happen to you. So follow God's will. Let us give our bodies and our minds times, a time to rest and to replenish. What else does God remind us of? Exodus 23 verse 13. Listen to everything that I, Yahuwah, have said to you. Do not pray to other gods. Do not even mention their names. And so this is idolatry. And God does not want us to engage in any kind or any form of idolatry because in our previous worship service, or actually, did we discuss that already? In our next worship service, 
we're going to discuss the different kinds of idolatry. So we want you to stay tuned for this Sunday, Saturday's worship service. Now we go to the next section. It's about the promises and instructions of God. You see, when God gives us instructions, it's because he wants to establish a covenant with us, right? What's a covenant? What's a covenant? It's like an agreement, right? It's like a, when you use the word covenant, you kind of put a legal aspect to it. It's like a legal agreement, like a contract, a signed contract. God establishes a covenant with his people. And in his covenant, it basically says, I will be your God, you will be my people. And so in the covenant, we have our part to do. God has his part to do. And so what does God expect? That we do our part and God will do his. And so promises and instructions, they fit together like lock to a key because one operates the other. And so for the promises of God to be fulfilled in our life, we have to do our part first, which is God's instruction. So what is the instruction of God? Exodus 23, 25 to 26. If you worship me, uh, Yahuwah your God, I will bless you with food and water and take away all your sickness. In your land, no woman will have a miscarriage or be without children. I will give you long lives. What is the instruction of God? God says, I want you to worship me. And so if we worship God and follow his instructions, what will God do for us? The Bible says, I will bless you with food. I will remove your sicknesses and I will give you long lives. Is that also applicable today? Yes. Take note, many, I'm not saying all, but many, most of God's promises to his people, they're conditional, right? It is based on us fulfilling our part. We need to understand the dynamic between God's instructions and God's promises fulfilled. What also is God's promise, which is linked to an instruction? Exodus 23, 27. I will make the people who oppose you afraid of me. I will bring confusion among the people against whom you fight. And I will make all your enemies turn and run from you. God is making this promise because God knows when they enter the promised land, who's going to be there to face them. Not friends who are going to roll the red carpet. Welcome, people of God. No, they're not going to find the red carpet. They're going to find enemies with swords who want to destroy them. And so God is telling them in advance, there's going to be enemies there. There's going to be people there. But this is my promise to you. I will make your enemies turn and run from you. And how will God do that? How does God fulfill his promise? I want you to take a close look at how God fulfills a lot of his promises. Okay, Exodus 23, 28 to 30, I will throw your enemies, your enemies into panic. I will drive out the Hevites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites as you advance. I will not drive them out within a year's time. If I did, the land would become deserted and the wild animals would be too many for you. Instead, I will drive them out. What does it say? Little by little until there are enough of you to take possession of the land. I mean, people of Israel, they're probably thinking, Lord God, can you just drive them out with the snap of your fingers? I mean, that's what we want, right? Instant cure, instant solution, instant miracles. Isn't that what we want? 
but that's not the way God operates. You know why? Well, God says, if I were to drive them out all at once, then the land would become deserted. The wild animals would be too many for you. See, God thinks in advance. And there are many things that we cannot see that God sees. For example, we say to the Lord God, Lord God, do this for me. And God says, I will do that. But little, little by little, right? The promise is being fulfilled little by little. Why? Because when you change swiftly, it affects so many other things in your life. This is why when God gives a promise and fulfills it, he does it slowly, gradually. So it doesn't affect our ecology because we live in a system. When you change one part in the system, it affects every other part in system. God knows that. And so God gives us time to grow into our change. See, God wants us not just to receive his blessing, but also to be changed and grow because of that blessing. Little by little, not swiftly. And what is God's promise to the people of Israel? Which he also gave to Abraham long ago back in Genesis. And he is basically reiterating here. Exodus 23 verse 31. I will make the borders of your land extend from the Gulf of Aquaba to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. And from the desert to the Euphrates River. I will give you power over the inhabitants of the land, and you will drive them out as you advance. And so God is telling the people of Israel, they're going to inherit a lot of land. And even in the book of Exodus, it specifies the boundaries of God's people. As a matter of fact, if we are to look elsewhere in Scripture, for example, if we are to look in Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17, and other places in scripture, it tells us the boundary of God's people. And Bible scholars have looked into it, and this is actually what the people of Israel were supposed to receive. Look at that. See that triangular shaped place right there? That's the, the people of God, the, the land promised by God to his people. It was promised by God. It's probably even larger than that because we don't really know where the Euphrates is at. So it's a lot larger than that in my estimation. But let's take this um, view from a variety of scholars using the Bible to kind of look at the borders of the, the land that was promised by God to his people Israel. But when you look at what they were actually able to occupy during the days of Solomon, the days of David, when the kingdom of Israel was at its peak, you know how much land they really occupied? A very tiny portion. Look at that. Only a tiny portion. When God promised that whole gray zone, what the people of Israel received is only that tiny spot, that tiny strip. In fact, they even lost that, right? Eventually gained some of it back, but they never met their, their true potential. Why is that? Well, let's go back to the promise of God. There's something there that I want you to focus on. This is the promise of God telling, telling us about the borders of the promised land. But notice the last part. What does it say? The last part says, I will give you. Notice that? I will give you power over the inhabitants of the land. And what does it say? You will drive them out as you advance. And so what do we need to understand about God and his promises? When he said before, I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to drive out your enemies. 
What does that mean? It means God will give us the ability, but we have to do the work ourselves. Did you get that? He'll give us the power. He'll give us the potential. But for us to reach that potential, guess what? We have to do the work ourselves. We have, our, they had to drive them out themselves. And to do that, what did they have to do? The book of Exodus 23, 32 to 33, do not make any agreements with them or with their gods. Do not let those people live in your country. If you do, they will make, your, they will make you sin against me. If you worship their gods, it will be a fatal trap for you. And so what was included in that promise of God? Bible says you have to drive them out, not me. I'll give you the power. Don't worry about that. I'll give you the power. I'll give you the means. Because always keep in mind, when God tells us to do something, he'll give us the ability to do that. And so God gave them the power so that the promise of God can be fulfilled. But they had to show up. They had to take action on their own. Unfortunately, instead of doing what God wants them to do, which is do not make any agreements with the false gods, what did they do? They did the exact opposite. And so they only received a portion of the promise. And they lost it in the captivity because of their sin of idolatry. Eventually, they lost it again in 70 AD when the Romans came and destroyed the temple. But they became a nation again back in 1948, I believe, right? Or was it 1968? I forget the date. But the people of Israel never got the full promise. They only got a small part of the promise, which... If you allow me, I want you to imagine yourself, okay? Imagine that you're in heaven. Is that good? Imagine you're in heaven. You're speaking with Yahuwah, our Father. And Yahuwah speaks to you and gives you a blank, uh, gives you a, peep, a piece of paper. And he tells you, read it, my son. Read it, my daughter. And you begin reading it. What is this, Father? Oh, those are the list of your accomplishments. And you read it, right? And when you read it, you begin to get confused. And you look at your father and say, Father God, I did not do any of those things. And then God says to you, I know you didn't. See, that was your potential. That was what you could have done, but you didn't. You know, brethren, without really realizing it, God has given us power. God has given us so much potential because we're the sons and daughters of God. We can accomplish so much. We're so afraid. We're held back by our fear. Brethren, hold on to God's promise. And with the promise of God, we need to take action. Because if you truly believe in God's promise, we will take action. Live your full potential. Live your life the way God wants you to live it. Not in fear, but in hopes that you will fulfill your maximum potential according to how God has blessed you with his power. Can we do that? Can we agree to do that? Do not live in fear. Do not let your past shackle you. Be free because God has promised you freedom and God has promised us the power to be what God wants us to be. Let's be that. But there's an even greater promise of God in the book of Exodus 23. And I want to share with you this promise of God because it's really awesome. <laughs> what is that? Exodus 23, 20 to 23. Behold. I'm going to send an angel before you. I want to pause there for a while. What's the title of our lesson today? The angel. This is the reason why it's called the angel. Because tucked in 
the book of Exodus, all of a sudden this very, very informative, yet mysterious prophecy and promise of God. What does he say? He says, behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. And so God, in the middle of all this, issues a promise of deliverance, right? Through the leadership of an angel that he will send out before them. You know who? You know what this is about? What is this angel all about? What do you think? What is this angel all about? You're probably saying to yourself, I have no idea. Who is that angel? Michael? Gabriel? Because the Bible mentions the angel of the Lord that appeared to Moses, right? In Exodus chapter 3. Where's this angel? There was an angel back when they had to face the Amalekites. The Amalekites killed, I mean, the angel killed the Amalekites, uh, brought victory for the people of Israel against the Amalekites, right? So what is this angel about? Who is the fulfillment of this angel? You know what? This is a good example of what we call a typological prophecy. Do you remember when we talked about a typological prophecy before? Yeah, what is a typological prophecy? Actual historical events that point to a greater, more complete fulfillment in redemptive history that contain thematic elements of the original event. An example of that was back in Exodus 17, 5 to 6, there was a rock. The rock was hit with a stick and water gushed forth, right? Did it actually take place? Yes, it took place in history. There was an actual rock. Moses actually used his staff to hit the rock. It was actual water. It was a historical event. And so this event pointed forward to a prophecy. The rock also represents someone else. Who is that? Yahushua HaMashiach. This is why when Yahushua was here on earth and he was speaking to the Jews, he said, when you read the scripture, the scripture testify of me. Yahushua says, the scripture is about me. Everything in the scripture is about Yahushua HaMashiach, including Exodus 23, 20 down to uh, 20 to 23. And so I'm going to send an angel before you. Was there an actual angel? Yes. However, it's also pointing in advance to a messenger that bears these characteristics listed here. What are these characteristics? First one, it says, he will guard you along the way. Who is guarding us along our path? Yahushua HaMashiach said, I will be with you until the end of time. Matthew 28. In Colossians and Philippians, the Bible says, in our union with Christ, he will guard our hearts and our minds. And so Yahushua is the one also being referred to there. What else? It also says, be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Was that fulfilled in Yahushua's ministry? Yeah. After he was baptized, he said to the people, 
God's voice from heaven announced, this is my son, listen to him. We are to listen to the voice of Yahushua Hama, Shiach, and those who listen to his voice and follow him, what did Yahushua say? I will give them everlasting life. What else does the prophecy say? It says, if you truly obey his voice and do, and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. In other words, this angel being prophesied here is in complete unity. He's one with Yahuwah, the Father. Who else is that? Yahusha, the son of the Father. What else? Bible says, he will bring you into the place which I have Prepare. It will bring you into the land. What is that land? Yes, there's a promised land in Canaan, but there's an even better promised land. Where is that? In heaven. Remember what Yahushua once said when he was on earth. He says, do not be troubled. Believe in, in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. I go and prepare a place for you so that I can come back. I can bring you to where I am now. Who is that? Oh, it's Yahushua, right? What else? It says here, this angel will pardon your transgression. I mean, was Gabriel, Michael, were they given the power to forgive sins? It doesn't say that in the Bible. But this one is given power to forgive sins. Who was that? Yahushua HaMashiach, right? What else? My name is in him. The name of Yahuwah is in him. Who is that? We all know who that is. Yahushua said in John 17, 11, I'm no longer in the world, yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. And so Yahushua is claiming that he is one, with Yahuwah, his father, because they are one in taking care of the people of God. In Exodus 23, is all about taking care of the people of God to bring them to the promised land. And so this angel, it was fulfilled in historical time, but also points forward to the coming of the Messiah. It's a prophecy about Yahusha, Hamashiach, the prophesied angel there, messenger of our almighty God. And so what this tells us is, way back then, God already knows the name he's going to give to his son. You know what is that? God already knows the name. The truth is, even before the foundation of the world, God has already chosen that name because it's his name. My name that I will give to my son. My name is in him. This is why Exodus 23 is a beautiful chapter in the book of Exodus. Now we're done with that, so we're going to go to our mailbox. It's going to be uh, pretty lengthy. Please bear with us, but let's go. We have like five questions we're going to discuss. Question number one is this. Okay? If it, it, by the way, the one who sent me these questions is a good friend of mine who doesn't believe Yahuwah, Yahusha, and all that. But, you know, we're still good friends, and just because you don't believe what I believe doesn't mean we're not friends. We're still good friends, okay? Uh, if it is so important to get the original name of Jesus correctly, then shouldn't he be called Yahshua since he was born in Judea? At the time he was born, Aramaic was already the language spoken in the area and no longer Hebrew. So most likely he was given an Aramaic name. 
How would you answer that? Is it true that there in that region, it was a place where they used the Aramaic language? Yeah, right? But why do we believe Yahushua is the name of the Messiah and not Yeshua? Because if you were to go to Jerusalem, for example, today, you're going to hear Yeshua, 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 right? I even once watched a movie about Jesus. I think it was the book of John, something like that. And when he was a kid, you know, you can hear people in the background say, Yeshua, Yeshua, right? Even my boy knows Yeshua, Yeshua. It's a common name in Hebrew. It's a common name given to people, Yeshua, right? Um, but why do we believe it's Yahusha and not Yeshua? Three reasons. Number one, God chose the name not the people. Number two, God gave the name, not the parents. Number three, God gave the name a distinction. This is why it's Yahusha, not Yeshua. Let's go through this one by one. First one, God gave the name. Before we go there, well, what is Aramaic in the first place? From this website, myjewishlearning.com, Aramaic is a close sister of Hebrew. So Hebrew and Aramaic are related. So Aramaic arose from Hebrew because Hebrew is a pure language of the Jewish people and is identified as a Jewish language since it is the language of major uh, Jewish texts, the Talmuds, Zohar, and many ritual recitations such as the Kaddish. And so Aramaic came from what language? Hebrew. Hebrew was a pure language until the days of the captivity. What happened when they were captives in Babylon? They adopted the customs, the languages of other people who were also enslaved in Babylon. This is like when you an immigrant from China comes to the United States, right? And all of a sudden they adopt different cultures, cultures from India, Filipino culture, Hispanic culture, American culture, and you kind of mesh that in one pot. You have your own unique Chinese culture, right? So what happened to Aramaic? Aramaic arose from Hebrew, but it's not pure Hebrew. So Aramaic was the result of the captivity. The Hebrews, the Hebrew people go in captivity in Babylon, and so it changed and caused the language to evolve and to become different. And so when the language evolved, guess what happened to the names? It also changed. And so what happened to the name Yahushua, which is the Hebrew name that is in the Bible? What happened to the name Yahushua? From this book, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, the full form Yahushua, which you can see there, highlighted in yellow. That's Yahusha. That's what you read in the Hebrew Bible, Yahusha. How, which, the name Yahusha that you can see there is composed of two parts. It is a compound name or a sentence name. It is composed of two other names. What is the first one? That one right there. What is that? What do you think that is? That should be familiar to you. What is that? Yahuwah. That's a tetragrammaton. Okay, so that's the first part of the name. The second part of the name is Yasha, to save. So Yahuwah, Yasha, God saves. Yahuwah saves. Yahusha, that's what Yahusha means. God saves through Yahusha, or through the Messiah. And so the one who's been called Yahusha is being used as an instrument to liberate or to deliver the people of God. Okay, however, after what happened to the name Yahusha? That's the full form on top. What happened eventually? It became a shortened form. You see it right there. That is Yeshua. 
And in this form, clearly, it no longer expresses the name of God. They took out Yahoo. You notice that? Because if you look at the first part of Yahusha's name, the first three parts, remember Hebrew is read from right to left. Do you see the first three parts, Yahoo in there, Yahusha? But they took it out. It became Yeshua. They took out the part that says Yahoo, which is the essential part of the name of the Father. And when did this happen? According to the same dictionary, this happened after the exile. And so the yellow became the green. Yahusha became Yeshua. They took out the name of Yahoo from God. When did this happen? After the exile. You see, there's a difference between before the exile and after the exile. Before the exile, the biblical name is Yahusha. And for some reason, translators today translate that as Joshua. Okay, they transliterate Yahusha as Joshua. So in the Bible, when you come across Joshua, it is actually Yahusha. Okay, Yahusha. And that's the Hebrew equivalent right there. You can see it. You can see the highlighted part, the Yahoo, the Yahoo part of God's name, right? Before the exile. After the exile, what happened to uh, Yahusha's name? It became shortened. They removed the Yahoo part and became what? Yeshua. So before exile, what is it? Yahusha. After exile, what happened? It changed to Yeshua. Now I'm going to invite you to pay close attention to a comparison of two servants of God. Is that okay? Here it is. Comparison. Ezra. Zechariah. Who was Ezra? He was a scribe. He copied scripture. He wrote scripture. He was a historian, in addition, among all among, amongst other things. What and Zechariah. Who was Zechariah? He was a prophet. So we have Ezra, we have Zechariah. Were both of them instrumental in writing parts of the Bible? Yes. This is why we have the book of Ezra. We have the book of Zechariah. I want you to look at this. In the book of Ezra, Ezra 3 verse 2, this is what he writes. He says, then Yeshua, Yeshua, the son of Josedach. So there's a person by the name of Jeshua or Yeshua. Okay, you see that? Who is he? The son of Josedach. This is what Ezra says. But Zechariah, speaking of the same person, this is what he says. Zechariah 6.11, take silver and gold, make an ornate crown and set it on the head of Joshua. Yahusha, the son of Jehoshadak. And so in Ezra, and these are the same translations, NASB, right? Ezra spells his name Yeshua, but Zechariah spells his name Yahusha. Yeshua, Yahusha. And so having seen that, this is a question I want to ask you. Who is right, Ezra or Zechariah? <laughs> who is right? Ezra or Zechariah? If we say Zechariah is right and Ezra is wrong, then we're probably saying the Bible's wrong. <laughs> oh boy, we're in a conundrum, <laughs> right? Conundrums. So who's right, Ezra or Zechariah? Here's the answer. They're both right. When Ezra wrote the name Yeshua, 
he was writing as a scribe, historian. But when Zechariah was writing, he was writing a prophecy. Why? He's a prophet after all, right? It's actually a typological prophecy. Was there an actual uh, Joshua the high priest? Yes, there was an actual Joshua the high priest or Yahusha the high priest. But in that prophecy of Zechariah, what does it say? Why is it called a typological prophecy, which we discussed earlier? Let's go to Zechariah 6, 11, and 13. Take silver and gold, right, and make an ornate crown, set it on the head of Joshua, Yahusha, the son of Jehoshadak. So that's the prophecy. Why? What is significant about this prophecy? Who is it pointing to? Who do you think? Let's look at the details. If you look at the details of this prophecy, this Joshua, this Yahusha, in the future, will be called the branch. Hmm, who is called the branch? Christ, right? What else? This Yahusha, son of Jehoshadak, according to the prophecy, he will build the temple of Yahuwah. He will build the temple. What's the temple today? What did the Apostle Paul say? The temple is not made of bricks. The building is you. You. So he will build the people of Yahuwah. Hmm. So it's pertaining to the church. What else? It says, he'll, it says here, he will, bear, he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. He will rule on a throne. He will be king. Who was king? Was Yahusha king? Yes. Was Christ king? Yeah. But not only that, if you keep reading the same prophecy, it says here, he's also a priest. A priest on his throne. So he's a priest of the Melchizedek order. Who's that? The Christ. This is why this prophecy, although it, had, it was based on an actual figure, points to the restoration of Israel, the restoration of God's people through the leadership of this restored Joshua, this restored Yahusha. And it mentions now the name. What is that name? Yahusha. And so this prophecy also points to the restoration of the name that became Yeshua in the future, God will make it restored. Yahusha. This is why the name Yahusha was chosen by who? God. It wasn't chosen by the people. The name Yahusha was not affected by the culture. God chose that name. Since when did God choose that name? Even in Numbers 13, 16, these are the names of the men whom Moses went to spy out the land. But Moses called Hosea, son of Nun, Joshua. Yahusha. Remember Joshua? His original name was Hosea. But before Moses died, he changed his name to what? To Joshua, which means what? Yahusha. Why would he do that? Because God told him to do that. Why would God tell him to do that? Because Joshua would be a type of Christ. How? He would be the one to lead the people of Israel to the promised land. You see that? And so the name Yahusha was already chosen even before the New Testament came. What else is the proof? Exodus 23, 21, the one we studied today, right? The angel that would be sent to Moses, my name is in him. And so number one, God chose the name. Since when did God choose that name? Eh, since a long time ago. Since 
the days of eternity. He chose a name even before, before the, the creation of the universe itself. That name was already chosen. So why Yahushua, not Yeshua? Because God was the one to choose that name, not the people. What else? Number two, God gave the name. This is what Yahushua said. Uh, in John 17, verse So, just if we go back to the question he asked, Yeshua, at the time he was born, Aramaic was already the language spoken in the area and no longer Hebrew. So most likely he was given Aramaic name. That would have been the case if the parents were the one to have given him the name, right? It would have been Aramaic. But was it the parents who gave him the name? No, it wasn't the parents. Who was it? John 17, 11. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you, who gave him the name. Not the parents. It wasn't Mary. It wasn't Joseph who gave the name to the Christ. Who was it? It was God. How did God give him the name? Matthew 1, 20, 21. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. To take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yahusha, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the meaning of the name Yahusha, Yahu and Yasha, which means God saves. And this man, the Christ, would be the one to become the instrument to carry out God's work of saving people from their sins. That's why his name is Yahushua. Does it make sense? Not Yeshua, Yahushua. And so God chose the name, God gave the name, and God gave the name a distinction. What is that distinction? Philippians 2.9, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, which is above every name. It's above every name. What else? In Acts 4.12, no other name under heaven has been given among men by which we must be saved. And so God gave a distinction to that name. Could it, could it have been an Aramaic name given to the Christ? Yes, if, if the one to do the choosing were the parents. But God had a plan all along. He would restore that name, Yahusha, and give it a distinction. Because after all, it's his name. Does that make sense? This is why it's Yahush, Yahusha, not Yeshua. Okay. All right. Uh, let's go to the next question. Number two. If Yahusha asked the name of Jesus, is that important? And he says that his sheep will be called by his name, then the name of the church should also be replaced. Christo, Christos, Christus is an honorific to denote Christ as the awaited Messiah, which was only attached to the name of Jesus by his disciples after his death. If we go by the logic of the importance of Christ's Hebraic name, then should the church's name be called Church of Yahusha Mashiach? That was a very valid question. It's a good question. First of all, is it wrong to call the church Church of Christ? No, because the Bible mentions Church of Christ. It simply means the church that belongs to the Christ. As a matter of fact, there are many names or many designations of the name of the church. For example, what, are, what is the church called in the Bible? It's also called Church of the First Born. What else? Churches of the Saints. What else? Churches of the Gentiles. I wonder if Filipinos are included there. 
<laughs> I'll let you decide. Right? So they're called churches of the saints, church of the firstborn, church of the churches of the Gentiles, because it is referring to the characteristics of the members of that church. But when the church is named, denotes the owner of that church, what should it be? Here's one. Corinthians 1, 2, church of God. Is it, oh, is it permissible to call it church of God? Yes. Why? Because whatever belongs to Yahusha belongs to who? God. Everything Yahusha has came from who? God. However, if you want to be more specific, because that's what we want, right? To go from the general to specific. If church of God is correct, what is more specific than that? Church of the Lord. Why? Because God gave the church to who? Yahusha, which he purchased with his blood. So the church that belongs to God was purchased by Yahusha with his blood. It belongs to who? Yahusha. Does it also belong to God? Yeah. But in more specific terms, the work concerning the church was given to who? Yahusha. But he's also called the Christ, the Messiah and the King. And so it is also appropriate to call it church of Christ. However, if you want to be really specific, it should be what? Church of Yahusha. And so if we go back to the question, he says, shouldn't the church's name be called Church of Yahusha Mashiach? Yes, I agree. It should be. I vote for that. It should be Church of Yahusha. That's more precise. That's more specific than Church of Christ. As a matter of fact, uh, we want to be called Yahushans. Why? Well, if you look at the prophecy in Isaiah 43, 5, it says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from these. Was that fulfilled? Yeah. When? When the church of Christ was registered in the Philippines, right? What else? And gather you from the West. Was that fulfilled? Yeah. When the church was registered in the far West. But what will eventually happen to the church of Christ? Bible says in verse 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. So there's going to be a name that belongs to God that he created for his glory. We're going to be called by that name. This is why we, would want, we want you to refer to us as the Yahushans, Church of Yahusha. And so I agree, we should be called Church of Yahusha. Let's go to question number three. You read the scriptures about God saying in Deuteronomy and Zechariah that God wanted his name, YHWH, to be called from generation to generation. The question is, why then did Christ not call God YHWH? Why did he call God his father, Abba, and never taught his disciples to call him YHWH? I think it was deliberate that Christ called God his father and not YHWH because the Old Testament God called YHWH by the Hebrews was a petulant, angry, and vindictive God. When Christ came, he introduced a loving and forgiving God who is slow to anger. This is why Jesus called him Father. And because it was God's preeminent messenger who taught us this, shouldn't we call God Father rather than by his Hebraic uh, name? And so let's go concentrate first on this question. My question is, why then did Christ not call God Yahuwah? Are you sure about that? Christ actually called on many occasions God Yahuwah. For example, in Matthew 4, 7 and 10, it says, Jesus, uh, Yahusha, said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt Yahuwah your 
God, verse 10, then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship Yahuwah your God, and him only you shall serve. We're not surprised that you will not find the actual name Yahuwah in the Bible. Right? What will you find? L-O-R-D. We know the reason why. The copyists, the translators, well, they were given instructions for some reason not to use the actual name when they were copying the translations of the Bible. And so when they came across Y-H-W-H, what were they supposed to put? L-O-R-D. This is why in your Bible, you will not find Yahuwah because it was covered. When did this take place? Long, long time ago. And when the New Testament was being copied, okay, what, because the, the translations that we have now, the Holy Bible, they are copies of copies. We don't have the original. When they copied the original, what was the instruction to the people making copies? Let's read here from a book entitled The Use of the Name, YHWH, by early Christians. This is what it says. So, so some copyists, to avoid this confusion, now, I want to pause for a while. The confusion is, if you translate Yahuwah into Lord, if you put Lord for Yahuwah, because of the advent of Yahusha, now they're confused. Who is being referred to as Lord? Is it Yahusha or is it Yahuwah? You see the, you see the conundrum, the confusion? And so what did some copyists do? To avoid this confusion, I prefer to translate YHWH by God. Can you imagine that? So this time in the New Testament, when they come across the name God, uh, Yahuwah, what do they put instead? God, Theos, or simply omit his name. Can you imagine that? Omitting his name, the copyists, omitting the name, as noted in the following passages, and included there is Acts 2.17. I want to jump there, Acts 2.17. It says, this is what I will do in the last days. God says, I will pour out my spirit on everyone. It should have been Yahuwah says. You see that? But the copyists, they purposely did not include the name Yahuwah in the New Testament. They had replacements for the name. And so what eventually happened to the actual name of the Father, Yahuwah, which is represented in four letters, the tetragrammaton. Well, again, in that book, these replacements were done early. Since after the second century of our era, which is AD, BC, AD, after the death of Yahusha, okay, after the second century of our era, no more traces of the writing and pronunciation of the name are found, except among a few Christian scholars. And so the name eventually was erased, no longer to be found in the copy. So when they copied the original, the name of the father was no longer there. It was replaced by replacements. And that presents a big problem. You know what that led to? Again, let's read the book. Thus, after 150, 150, this is like, when was the Bible completed? 90? This is like 60 years later. 150. God's name disappeared of most usual copies in Greek of the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament translated in Greek, or the New Testament. So in the New Testament, God's name disappeared altogether. This is why we're not surprised in our copies, we don't have the actual tetragrammaton there. For example, Tertullian. Remember Tertullian? What was Tertullian known for? Trinity, right? A Latin Christian quoted the text of Matthew 24, 22, 44, or Psalm 10, 1, to prove that both Jesus and God were the same Lord. 
but he mistook Lord used as a name, YHWH, and the Lord used as a title for the Messiah. Because the name YHWH, the tetragrammaton, was removed and replaced with Lord, it led to this interpretation that Jesus is also God. And so the name got removed, and because the name got removed, Jesus becomes who? This is why we're not surprised in our copies. We don't find a specific Yahusha or the apostles specifically calling out the, the name, the actual tetragrammaton. However, does it mean the early Christians did not know the name? John 17, 6. I have manifested your name to the men you have given me. So Yahusha specifically mentions that he manifested the name. Now the copyists can't do anything about the name, right? If Yahusha said, I have manifested Yahusha, Yahuwah, your name, then the copyists would have done something about that. But it says here, I manifested your name. So now we know the early Christians knew the name. Yahusha manifested the name. What else? He will also make it known, not just during the days when he was here on earth, but even during our time. He will make it known. And to whom will he make it known to? Hebrews 2, 11 and 12. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters, for he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. And so clearly, the name of the Father was known by the Christians and used by the Christians. What further proves this? Matthew 28, 19. When Yahushua gave them the instruction to baptize, what did he say? Baptize in the name of the Father. And when they baptized, they used the actual name of the Father, because when they baptized, they used the actual name of the Son, right? They didn't go, I baptize you in the name of the Son. No, I baptize you in the name of Jesus for you, or Yahusha for us, right? And so when they baptized in the name of the Father, they used the actual name of the Father. Did they use the name of the Father in prayer? Yeah. Matthew 6, 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, may your holy name be honored. When we pray to God, what do we use? Do we use Father? Do we address Him as our Father, our Abba? Yes. But it doesn't mean we cannot refer to Yahuwah as our God. Because the question that was asked is, why don't you just, use, why don't you just call Him Father? We do call Him Father. But when Yahushua said to us to call God Father, it doesn't mean we cannot use His actual name. You see the difference there? Why did Yahusha tell us to call him Father? Because what God planned long ago has been fulfilled. What was that plan long ago? In Ephesians 1, 4 down to 7, even before the world was made, God had already chosen us to be his through our union with Christ so that we would be holy and without fault before him because of his love. God had already decided that through Jesus Christ, he would make us his children. This was his pleasure and purpose. Let us praise God for his glorious grace, for the gift he gave us in his dear son. For by the blood of Christ, we are set free. Why did Yahusha say to his disciples, call God your father? Because he wants to tell them this plan of God that he came up with in the very beginning, before the foundation of the world was being fulfilled, right? Because before that, there was no way you could be called a son or daughter of God. That would be blasphemous. Yahushua says, no, it's not blasphemous anymore. You are the sons and daughters of 
God. But even if you call him Father, Yahusha also says, may your holy name be honored. I'll ask you a question. Can you honor the name without knowing the name? How can you honor the name if you don't know the name? <laughs> to honor the name means to know the name and to represent that name in a way that pleases the bearer of that name. That's how you honor the name. This is why just because Yahushua calls, tells us to call him father, it doesn't mean that we are not allowed, that we should no longer proclaim the name of God. We should. We should. But at the same time, he's telling us we are also his sons and daughters. Let's go to the other part of that uh, question. It says here, I think it was deliberate that Christ called God as father and not YHWH because the Old Testament God called the Old Testament God called YHWH by the Hebrews was a pest was a petulant, angry, and vindictive God. When Christ came, he introduced a loving and forgiving God who is slow to anger. So the question implies that the God of the Old Testament is no longer the God of the New Testament, that they're two different gods. Or like his personality shifted. What do you think? Yeah? Is it true that God's personality shifted? Does he have a dual personality? This is the God of the Old Testament. Now this is the God of the New Testament. No, because it says here in the Old Testament, he was a petulant. He was childish. He was a childish God, angry God, vindictive God. But in the New Testament, he was a loving God, forgiving God. Is that true? No. What's the proof? Malachi. Yahuwah says, I am Yahuwah. And I do not change. You see, there's something we need to understand about God. We have to understand that God is the God as he revealed himself in the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament and the New Testament God match. They're one and the same because God does not change. But we have to be careful of this. What is that? The Bible says God created us in his image, right? But what are people trying to do now? What are people trying to do? People today are trying to create God in their image. They want to create a God that they like, a loving and forgiving God, but not a God of wrath, not a God of fire. They want like a, a soft God, the one you can push around. <laughs> That's not God. We have to accept God for who he is. We cannot create our own image of God. That would be all we do. The New Testament God, how is he described? In Hebrews 12, 28, 29, this is New Testament. Yeah, since we are received, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe, for our God is a devouring fire. And when will this fire and wrath be fully manifested? On judgment day. Is judgment day when everything will be destroyed by fire? Will that take place in the Old Testament? No, it's going to take place in the future, the New Testament, right? You see, God does not change. Is he love? Yes. Is he forgiving? Yes. Is he merciful and compassionate? Yes. But he also, he's also just, he's also a God of fury, a God of wrath. See, we cannot just take what we want about God and reject what we don't want about God. We have to take God as who he is, how he introduces himself to be God. Do you know why people are able to say, that in the Old Testament, God is different. The New Testament, God is different. 
is because they haven't taken the time to really read the New Test, the Old Testament, right? What shall, what will we understand when we just study the Old Testament from cover to cover? First Peter 1, 15 and 16, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scripture says you must be holy because I am holy. People who say that God is childish, vindictive, God is uh, wrath and angry all the time, they don't understand the holiness of God. When they read the Old Testament, they don't fully grasp what it means. This is why we invite you, study the Old Testament, study Exodus, study the book of Leviticus, study the book of Genesis, and what will you learn? The whole picture about God. Yes, he's holy, but we can already see in Exodus how loving he is, how kind he is, that he, how patient he is. Look at how he dealt with the people of Israel. Look at his patience. Yes, God is a God of wrath, but he's also a God of mercy. And this was seen in the book of the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, because of the greatness of the strictness and separation brought about by God's holiness, because the one thing we learn about God's holiness is God is up here, right? And we're like puny down here. There's this big separation between God and man. And God is so strict about that. This is why only the high priest priests can enter the most holy place and only once a year. You remember the strictness? This was because of the greatness of God's holiness. He's so up here, we're so down here, there's a big gulf. God's holiness. However, I want you to think of this statement and I want you to fill it in. You see the comma there? Because of the greatness of the strictness and separation brought about by God's holiness, which we see in the book of Exodus. What can you say after that? You know what we can say? Because of the greatness of the strictness and separation brought about by God's holiness, we can now all the more appreciate the greatness of God's love. Now we can enter the most holy place. Why? Why and how is it possible that God who is so great can now allow people like us to be able to access his holiness and his presence because of his love when he sent through his son to die on the cross. This is why the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. He's called Father, not because there's a shift in his personality. No, he's called Father to fulfill the promise he had before the foundation of the world that through Yahushua the Christ, we can now access him and have the freedom to call him Father. Okay, that's what that means. All right, let's go to question number four. Why is the tetragrammaton associated with the pentagram? which is a symbol of witchcraft and the devil. Lou White, oh no, not Lou White again. Lou White, I feel bad for the guy, really. He's just minding his own business. <laughs> Lou White, who translated the version of the Bible, you draw your info from and from where you derive most of the lesson, you taught on Yahuwah and Yahusha from its intro, was involved in witchcraft and sorcery. I hope you are aware of that. He says this himself in his webpage. So let's go to the first topic. Why is the tetragrammaton associated with the pentagram, which is a symbol of witchcraft and the devil? Well, what is the, tet the tetragrammaton? This is the tetragrammaton. It's simply the name of God represented in four letters, right? The yod, the hey, the wow, and the hey. That's the tetragrammaton. Four letters, which is the name of the Father. That's the tetragrammaton. Now, what is the pentagram? This is, uh, we cannot deny the existence of the tetragram. It's in the scriptures. It's even in archaeological digs. It's in the rocks and it's in steels. We can find archaeological evidence of the name Yahuwah. Okay, so it's, the tetragrammaton is there. 
It's in the Bible. And so if it's in the Bible, we should accept it. Now, what is the pentagram? This is what the pentagram looks like. And I'm trying to see how that connects. How on earth can someone say that the tetragrammaton is the pentagram? Or is it they're associated together? Well, I guess anyone can say anything, right? Anyone can say anything. For example, there are people today who say that Jesus is the brother of Satan. There are, yeah, that's the belief of the uh, Mormons. Mormons believe that Jesus is the brother of Satan. There are those who believe that Jesus is Satan because they're both called the morning star, right? There are people who believe that. People can come up with their own beliefs. And so when someone comes up with a belief that the pentagram and the tetragram are one and the same, does it make it true? No. Well, I was looking through the internet and I'm trying to figure out how on earth can they say that about the tetragram? And so there's this website. This is what it says. It says tetragram. You look at the highlight. It's a mystical name made from Hebrew letters yod, he, vav, he. So far, so good? Okay. Each letter represents one of the four elements. Yod is the sacred fire, with he being water and the womb of the great mother. Vav is air, or the sun born from the union of the male, fire and female water. The second last he is the lesser mother. So the he can stand for different things. First it was water, and the second he stands for a lesser mother or bride of love, <laughs> representing earth. The YH, uh, VH equals fire, water, air, earth. Does that make any sense? It does not make any sense, right? Do you know what that is? When people say things like that, when they say like the, the tetragrammaton is the pentagram, do you know what that is? That is Exodus 27, right? What does Exodus 27 say? You must not misuse the name of Yahuwah. So that's a misuse of the name of Yahuwah. Are we surprised that the name of Yahuwah will be blasphemy? Are we surprised that the name of Yahuwah will be misused? We're not surprised at all. Why? This is what Apostle Paul said, Ephesians 6, 12. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And so we're not surprised. You have these evil spirits. You have these people working underground, unseen, and they influence governments, they influence people, they influence the internet and websites, they influence even religious people. We're not surprised that people will associate bad things to something as good as the name of God. This is why when people say, oh, the pentagram is a tetragrammaton, that is in violation of the book of Exodus. And it just doesn't make any sense. Right? It's, it's like what I saw. Somebody put uh, 666 as Brother Felix Faimanalo. When you calculate the name, Felix, but they misspell it. Uh, they add some letter to make it 666. You can, call, you can make up your own ideas. But just because you come up with something doesn't make it so. But what is confusing to me is the second part of that question. Because he says, Ruwite is involved in witchcraft. And sorcery. I hope you are aware of that. I'm not aware of that. He says this himself in his webpage. And so I was curious, what? By the way, I'm not endorsing Lou White. We never did. Everyone, I mean, none of us endorse Lou White. We, did we use some of his resources? Yeah, but we'll get to that later on. But just these people are the one who's making it appear that we are endorsing Lou White. But is it true that he dabbled in witchcraft and sorcery? 
And so I looked at his website, right? And so I went to his website, it's called the Torah Institute. You can go to torahzone.com, you will go there. And this is what I found, list of books. And then when I look at the books, these are nice books. And I looked for witchcraft. I, I went to the search, um, search bar and I typed witchcraft and that's what I got. Oh my gosh, witchcraft, you see? There's a book on witchcraft. Therefore, Lou White is endorsing witchcraft. What do you think? You could be right. And so I clicked on witchcraft for $7. It's pretty cheap for a DVD. So I clicked on it, look at the description. It says a DVD presentation providing the details of how history's greatest sorcerer, Hashatan, has misdirected his audience to pay attention to what simply appears to be witchcraft. So he was not endorsing witchcraft, he was warning people about witchcraft. <laughs> right? And the other uh, book or article he wrote, Zodiac of the Beast, is he endorsing the Zodiac sign? Does Psalm 19 teach us about the Zodiac? What did Yahuwah direct us to learn about? The past, present, or future from studying the constellations. Astrologers have used the heavens to divine the future. And today, not so Raymond Christian teachers are using constellations to interpret events of the past and the timing of the return of Yahusha. And so he's warning here about the use of the Zodiac. And even this book, again, it has witchcraft, strong delusion, witchcraft. Are you unknowingly practicing witchcraft? Question mark. So again, it's a book that is to warn us about witchcraft. Witchcraft. He's not endorsing witchcraft. And so I don't know where he got the idea that um, Blue White is teaching witchcraft. He's apparently not. He's preaching against it. And when I look at these books, it's probably something I might want to get. I want to look into it. How we, we could be guilty of witchcraft without even knowing it, right? So how did he get to that conclusion? Maybe we can look at, look at some of these resources and books, okay? So let's go to question number five. If the church is really true, then why does revelation come from teachings from other religions? Exil, Vicaris Vendi from the Seventh-day Adventists, the Humanity of Christ from the Christadelphians, and Yahuwah and Yahusha from the white BMYV and the Messianic Jews. It appears the church is shopping for teachings that are congruent to its agenda rather than getting direct revelation from God, which was how he worked with his messengers before. So let's go focus on this question first. I just want to comment on this part, that Yahud, our teachings concerning Yahuwah and Yahusha came from the white. Is that true? No. Yahuwah and Yahusha was not invented and first taught by Lou White. He was not the inventor or the one who originally came up with that. As a matter of fact, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, Yahuwah, the personal name of the El of the Israelites, the Masoretes, Jewish biblical scholars of the Middle Ages, replaced the vowel signs that had appeared above or beneath the consonants of YHWH with the vowel signs of Adonai or of Elohim. Thus, the artificial name Jehovah, Yehovah, came into being. Although Catholic scholars after the Renaissance and Reformation periods used the term Jehovah for YHWH in the 19th and 20th centuries, biblical scholars again began to, to use the, uh, the form Yahuwah. Thus, this pronunciation of the Tetragrammaton was never really lost. Greek transcriptions also indicate that YHWH should be pronounced Yahuwah. 
Yahuwah. So according to the encyclopedia, Yahuwah, the way it's pronounced, it was not invented during, it was not invented by Lou White. Before Lou White was born, it was already pronounced Yahuwah. If you look at the writings of Josephus, who was around the first century, and the writings of Greek scholars, they used the tetragrammaton and pronounced it Yahuwah. But then in the um, 16th century, 15th century, uh, Roman Catholic Church, they invented the name Jehovah by combining YHWH and the consonants of either Adonai or Elohim. You get Jehovah or Yehovah. And then later on, Yahweh came. So you have these three major names Yahuwah, Yahweh, or uh, Yahuwah, Yahweh, or Yahuwah, Yehovah, or Jehovah. Okay, so you got these three major names, but in actuality, the name of Yahuwah came even before Yehovah. Yahuwah, if you look at the older uh, manuscripts, in fact, even the Jehovah's Witnesses have this to say. While inclining to view the pronunciation Yahuwah as the more correct way, we have retained from Jehovah because of people's familiarity with it since the 14th century. Moreover, it preserves equally with other forms, the four letters of the Tetragrammaton JHVH. So even the, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe Yahuwah is the more accurate uh, pronunciation of the Tetragrammaton. You see, in the 19th and 20th, 20th century, there was, a there was a scholar by the name of Max Reisel, and he created the first, the most comprehensive book on the subject of the name of God, the most comprehensive. And he leaned towards the pronunciation of God's name as Yahuwah. This is why it became all of a sudden popular. It spurred the sacred name movement. This book by Max Rizio, where he popularized the name Yahuwah. He gave a lot of examples why Yahuwah is the name or the pronunciation of the name of God. Okay? So it wasn't Lou White who invented the name Yahuwah or Yahusha. It was not him. Okay? Um, and go back to the other part of this question. Direct revelation from God, because it, says it appears the church is shopping for teachings that are congruent to its agenda, rather than getting direct revelation from God, which was how he worked with his messengers before. And so I just want to quickly go over who are considered messengers. Who are considered messengers? There are different ways. I mean, there are different functions of messengers. Number one, messengers who do not proclaim the words of God. Who are they? Cyrus, or the big four, they are kings of nations, leaders of nations. They're also spiritual beings who are called messengers. Who are they? Gabriel, Michael, angels from heaven. Okay. There are also messengers who receive direct revelation from God to write the scripture. And so when people ask me, well, who's the last messenger? Well, what do you mean by messenger? If you if what you mean by messenger is one who received direct messages from God to write the Bible. And the last messenger would be who? Apostle John, right? Apostle John is the last messenger. Now, there's also a messenger in this form, verse uh, number four, messenger who receives direct revelation from God to correctly understand scripture that has already been written. You see the difference between three and four? Since the scripture has already been written, what do we rely on? Number four, and who are examples of that? Felix by Manalo, Brother Iranuji, Manalo, and others. Whoever receives direct revelation. This is why I want to focus on that word direct revelation. What does that mean? Direct revelation from God. If God speaks to you face to face, is that direct revelation? 
I think so. When God speaks to you through the scripture, through the Holy Spirit, is that direct revelation? Why not? Why can't it be considered direct revelation? When God speaks to you through his spirit, when he joins his spirit with ours, isn't it also direct revelation? Could be, right? You know, we can get bogged down by the semantics, but the point is, after the Bible was written, for us to receive direct revelation from God means to correctly understand what the scriptures tell us. You see the difference? And so for us to be able to understand the meaning of scripture, we need the spirit of God. Which brings us to the comment he made, it appears the church is shopping for teachings that are congruent to its agenda. Is it true for some? Could be. Could be. That's why we have to be careful. Because if we start with an agenda and look for scripture to back it up, that's wrong. You're going to be biased to interpret scripture according to the agenda. If you put the agenda as your lens, then you're only going to look at scripture that is in favor of your lens. Right? It should be the other way around. We look at scripture that determines the agenda. Are we shopping for teachings because of an agenda? No, we're not shopping for teachings. What are we doing? We're searching for truth by asking questions and letting the Bible give us the, the answer. Isn't that the way it's supposed to be? The truth is, we could not do this when we were still in the institution, all right? I mean, could we ask, oh, what's the real name of the Father? What would people tell us? Oh, right? the messenger did not teach that. Don't, don't dabble in things like that. That's what we would we never see. And so when we left the institution, all of a sudden we have the freedom. The freedom to do what? To create our own doctrines? No. The freedom to search the scripture. What will prompt our search? The question we ask. We ask the question. We look at the Bible for the answer. And then from there, work what God wants us to work on, right? We don't go and look for an agenda, and from the agenda, look at the scripture. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We begin with the scripture, okay? This is why we must rely on what? Direct revelation from God. What is that? What do we need? So that we can receive direct revelation from God, which will guide us to find the correct answers to the questions we ask. We need two things. What are they? Number one, we need the Bible, right? What is having the Bible enough? We also need what? Yeah, we need the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, the Bible, you have that combination, we get direct revelation from God. That's what we need. Do we have the Spirit? Yeah, by prophecy in the Holy Scriptures. We have the Spirit. Do we have the Bible? Yes! And so because we have both, what can we do? We can now ask the Bible questions. Right? And we can get the answer. But when we use the Holy Bible and when we use the Holy Spirit, to find and get direct revelation from God so that we will know the truth. What do we need to apply? Corinthians 2.13. These things we also speak, not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. How? Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And so we look at the Bible and look at other parts of the Bible and other parts of the Bible to get the answer to the question that we ask. Right? And so what is the question that we ask? We wanted to know the name. I mean, did we ask what the real name of the Father is because we have an agenda? No. We wanted to know the name of God. Why? 
because it must be important because it mentions the name all the time. We wanted to know what the real name of the father is. Before we could not ask that question, now we can. And so we asked the question, so how did we find the answer? Well, three things that we did when we, when we looked and researched the name. Number one, is it in the Bible? Number two, does it fit the biblical meaning? Number three, is there or are, are there other biblical support? Is there other biblical support for the name? And so we started with, is it in the Bible? Right? What do you notice about the three? It's all? Yeah. It has to be biblical. We did not ask the question, okay, what is the name of the father? Let's go look at Lou White. No, we didn't do that. We went, what's the name of the, what's the name of, of God's, what is the real name of God? And then we went to the Bible. And so what do we find? Is it, is it really in the Bible? Yes, 7,000 times it's there. In Paleo-Hebrew. And so from the Bible, we need to know, okay, what was the grammar rules without the Nikud markings? Because the Nikud markings was invented a thousand years after Yahusha was here on earth. And so it had nothing to do with the, the name. And so we had to know the alphabet, right? That was the simplest thing to do. We looked at the Bible. It had the, the name of the father there in four letters. And so all you had to do is go to the alphabet. The simplest thing to do, learn the alphabet during the time when it was written, not Aramaic, but Hebrew, Paleo, Hebrew, which had a simple, very, very simple vocabulary in alphabet and very simple syntax, right? And so we use that, it's all biblical, and what did we come up with with the, with the, the name? Yahuwah. In all honesty, when we ask the question, what is the name? For me, my personal bias was Yahweh. Because all the, all the even while I was studying the ministry, I believed, I thought that uh, it, it was Yahweh, okay? That was my bias. But if we were to find out from the Bible what his real name is, we have to get rid of all bias. Initially, when I did the search, the bias I had was Yahweh. Yahweh, that's what I believe. Because that's the name I heard. I knew it could not be Jehovah because we know he's not Jehovah. Otherwise, we had that lesson in our, our, in our ministry. But Yahweh, it was never really talked about. So I had this idea, it must be Yahweh. But when we looked at the alphabet, when we looked at the alphabet of the Paleo Hebrew, no matter what I did, you cannot come up with, Yah with Yahweh. It's a four letter word using the alphabet of Paleo Hebrew without the liquid markings. It would always come out Yahuwah. There's no other way but Yahuwah. And so we started off, okay, Yahuwah. This is our starting, our starting place. No longer Yahweh, it's Yahuwah. That's our starting place. And we go to question number two Does it fit the biblical meaning? Because in Exodus 3.14, God gives the meaning of his name. What is that? I am who I am, which fits Revelation 1.8. You have the two parts. I am who I am. Three parts for the connector who, right? Yahweh takes the I am, one part, and converts it to third person to get Yahweh. And so Yahweh uses only one third of the name. You get that? But his full name is, the meaning of his full name, full name is, I am who I am. This is why we know it cannot be Yahweh. Because it only represents one third of the name. I am in the third person. That's what Yahweh means. So could it be Yehovah? No. Because to get Yehovah, you have to get the tetragram and add the vowels of Adonai or Elohim. 
That's how you get Yahuwah. And so it could not be that. How about Yahuwah? It fits perfectly. To get Yahweh, you have to get the root word Yahaya. Haya, which means I am. Haya. But it's not just I am. It's I am who I am. Haya, then Asher, Haya. But Haya has an equivalent word, Hawa, which has also the meaning of breathing or causing to exist, which fits Revelation 1, 8. The one, the self-existent one who causes all things to exist. So Haya, Asher, Hawa, Yahuwah. It fits the biblical meaning. And so, okay, so far so good. Two out of two. The third one. Is there other biblical support? Turns out, there is. And this is what convinced me. <clears throat> this is what utterly convinced me. That the name of God has to be Yahuwah. Why? Because of the name of God's people. Yahoo, Yahoo, Yahoo. It's all over the people of God. Even Judah. The name of God's people. It is what? Yahoo, da. And so when you look at the biblical evidence, it only means the name of God has to be Yahuwah. And so we figured out, okay, Yahuwah is the name. Now what do we want to do? We need to look for references. We need to look for translations. That's why we, ran up, we came across the BYNV, is it that? Right? And the El Sefer. So we used those references and other references that support the Yahuwah. But we came first from the Bible. We used the Bible first to determine what is the truth about the name. And then we looked for references that we can use for a teaching tool. In fact, we even use our translations. But there were some brethren who were getting confused because of the other Hebrew names. That's why we stopped using El Sefer and BYNB because the other Hebrew names that were confusing the brethren. But we, want, we want clarity. And so we just preserve the Hebrew names of God and his son. Okay? There's a bonus question here. Last question. And regarding the exhortation of proclaiming the name of God, is it really a literal proclamation of God's name? The way I understand it is it's a metaphoric proclamation of his name, extolling his kindness, mercy, goodness, protection, etc., which was what Psalms were all about. Fair question. Truth is, this is what I used to believe. When I was studying the ministry and I read the Bible, I mean, all of us know about the name, right? And we, we even mentioned in our prayer. We didn't, and we didn't even know what it really meant, right? We worship your name. How many here prayed that? When we were still in the institution, we were praying. We worship your name, O oh God. <laughs> Did we use that before? Yeah. So it's all over the Bible that we use the name of God. So when I was in the institution, I always thought it was metaphoric. It just simply stood for the character of God. But that's true, partly, but not fully. And when it comes to proclaiming the name of God, I believe it's not just metaphoric because it's beyond that. It's literal too. It's literal and it also means the character of God. Why do I believe it's literal proclamation, meaning voicing out the name of God? Exodus 20 verse 7. You must not misuse the name of Yahuwah your God. The use of the name of God, for you to be able to misuse it, there has to be a command to, to what? Use it. You will not be in danger of misusing it if you don't know it. You see, the people of God routinely used 
the name of the father. This is why this command came up, because it could be misused. This is why the fact that it's included in the Ten Commandments tells us that the use of the name of God was a routine part of the people of God. As a matter of fact, even King Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, what did he use? And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord, the altar of Yahuwah, in front of the entire community of Israel. He lifted his hands toward heaven, and he prayed, O Yahuwah, O Yahuwah, God of Israel. And so that wasn't metaphoric. That was literal, right? He called upon the name Yahuwah. <coughs> what else? In Numbers 6, 26 then Yahuwah said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons to bless the people of Israel with this special blessing. When you bless someone, is that in written form, metaphorical form? When you bless someone, is it metaphorical? This was an invocation of the name of the Father in the blessing. It says, may Yahuwah bless you and protect you. May Yahuwah smile on you and be gracious to you. May Yahuwah show you his favor and give you his peace. So it was not metaphorical, it was literal, right? Not only that, in the book of Ruth, Two, four, down the five. Well, she was there. Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. Boaz was a rich person living in Jerusalem. Greeted the harvesters. Yahuwah be with you, he said. Yahuwah bless you, the harvesters replied. And Boaz asked his foreman, who is that young woman over there? Ruth, who does she belong to? So here we see an example of how it is routinely used as a greeting as a blessing, right? Yahuwah be with you. That was a common greeting of the people of God. Yahuwah bless you. That was a common blessing that the people of God used for each other. But you must not misuse it. You must not use the name of the Father in vain. And so it was invoked. The actual name was invoked by the people of God. If the proclaiming the name of the Father is only metaphorical, then it's also metaphorical when Yahusha says to pray in his name. This is what he says in John 15, 16. Yahusha is the one preaching uh, or teaching. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. When Yahusha said that, pray in my name. Is that metaphorical? Meaning we only pray what about what Yahusha proves out. Because if you think of it metaphorically, that's what it means. You only pray for whatever Yahusha would approve of. Right? Is that also literal? When we pray, when you pray, the one who asked this question, when he was praying, did he actually use the name of Yahusha? How do we end our prayer? How do we, how do we end our prayer? We ask everything in the name of? Yahusha. Yes! Right? When we were in the institution, we ask everything in Jesus' name. Right? Was that literal or metaphorical? It was literal. So if it was literal with the name of Yahusha, don't you think it should be literal with the name of the Father? Does it make sense? Right? And furthermore, this is what Apostle Paul said. Romans 10, 9 13. If you confess with your mouth that Yahusha is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for it is by believing in your heart that you will make right with God. And it is by confessing with your mouth that you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of Yahuwah will be 
saved. And so here the Apostle Paul is emphasizing what? Calling with the mouth. Is that metaphorical? No. What do you confess with your mouth? Literal, not metaphorical. The name of Yahusha and the name of Yahuwah, both. And this is the Christian era, right? And so we have both instances. And so throughout scripture, there's all these teachings about the name of the Father. And so we know that when it says proclaim the name, it is actually using the name literally. But, and most importantly, when we use that name, it should be in accordance with the character of God. Because how do you misuse the name of the Father? When you use his name out of character of who he is. You get that? That's how you misuse the name of the Father. For example, if you say that Yahuwah's name is the the pentagram, is God into witchcraft? No. So it's out of character of who God is, which is why the question of this brother, um, when he says, the way I understand so understand it is it's a metaphoric proclamation of his name is partly true extolling his kindness mercy goodness protection etc which was what the psalms were all about and when you read the psalms you do find the virtues the character of god like in psalm 69 16 psalms 84 11 25 8 18 10 you find loving kindness and mercy shield grace glory good upright safe right it represents who god is the character of god but what do you notice when these attributes are spoken about in Psalms? What do you notice? You notice something? Yes, it's attached to the name. It's attached to the name. How could you give glory to the name if you don't know what the name is? How do you give glory? How do you proclaim the name? When you proclaim the actual name and then associate what is of character, of God's character to that name. This is why for you to be able to proclaim the name, yes, it represents the character of God, but you need to make the connection to his actual name to give glory to the name. You cannot give glory to the name, proclaim the name, if you don't know what the name is. This is why proclaiming the name is important. And to further drive home the point, this is what Apostle Paul said, 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are, who are his and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. And so what Apostle Paul was mentioned is, is telling us here, naming the name, what does that mean? When you name the name, you say the name. You invoke the name. This is not metaphorical. That's why he said name the name. This is invoking the actual name. However, if we are to invoke the actual name of the Father, we have to abstain from what? wickedness because the father abhors wickedness so if we will use the name of the father we live in wickedness does god get glory no how does god get glory if when we live according to the character of god and use the name of god if we live according to the character of god who gets the glory you do but if you live according to the character of god and you proclaim the name who gets the glory god does you see the difference? This is why you get both. You connect both. Invoking the name and living according to the standard that name represents. That's how we proclaim and give glory to the name of the Father. This is why Apostle Paul said you have to confess it. You have to confess the name 
not only of Yahusha, but also Yahuwah. Here, Apostle Paul mentions both names. You want to be saved? He says, confess with your mouth that Yahusha is Lord. You want to be saved? The Bible says, call on the name of Yahuwah. And whom does God expect to do that? You call on the name of Yahusha. Zechariah 13, verse 9, the third group, that's us. What does it say? He will call. He will call on my name. It even mentions what we're going to say. And they will say. Is that metaphorical? When, you, when the Bible says they will say, is that metaphorical? No, that's actual. And we did that. Yahuwah is our God. And this is why when the Bible says to proclaim the name, it is to use or invoke the actual name of the Father. And at the same time, we live according to the standard that name represents. And then when we do that, we call upon the name of the Father. And we, we will receive his promised salvation. Okay? And that's our lesson. Let us all stand and we shall pray together. Everlasting Father. Yes. Thank you so much for all of your blessings. Yes. You are indeed great because you have made us your sons and daughters. Amen. What a privilege it is to call you our Father. Yes. And it's a relationship with you. Yes. But we also know you are a holy God. Yes. And your name is Yahuwah. Amen. And so we will call upon you as Yahuwah our Father. Yes. Because that is what you want, so that we can glorify your holy name. Amen. Help us that we will never misrepresent your name. Yes. Teach us to live in righteousness, to obey your commands, yes. to live according to your standard, yes. that we will not misuse your name. Rather, through our way of life, through our sharing of our faith, yes. we will proclaim the greatness of your name. Amen. Lord Yahusha, thank you so much yes. for dying on our behalf yes. so that we can have access to the presence of our God. Yes. Lord Yahusha, you are our king. We belong yes. to you as well. May you be with your servants. Help us to be courageous, yes. to stand for what is right, even when there is pressure to do what is wrong. Help us to choose you every time, yes. in every way, that we can be led to our Father. Amen. Father, have mercy upon your...